So you know, uh, we just sang that song, I Raise My Hallelujah. Do you know that the word hallelujah is primarily an Old Testament word? It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. And all four times are within six verses in Revelations chapter 19. And they're all in reference to the second coming of Jesus. No fact is more established in Scripture than the second coming. The prophets prophesied about it in the Old Testament. Jesus proclaimed it in the Gospels. Angels pronounced it in the books of Acts. The church preached it in the epistles. And Jesus pronounced it himself in the book of Revelations, that behold, he's coming quickly. The first and second coming were for both foretold in the Old Testament. All the prophecies concerning the first coming were fulfilled. All the prophecies concerning the second coming are going to be fulfilled in the future. In the New Testament, there's over 300 verses that speak of the second coming of Jesus Christ. 13 of the 27 New Testament books talk about the second coming uh, directly and explicitly. The other 14 books refer to it indirectly. Jesus spoke repeatedly about the second coming uh, in his parables on the Mount of Olives, in the upper room before his crucifixion. And in John 14, he says, I will come again. He came the first time um, from a star, with a star in the east. He's coming the second time as the bright and morning star. He came the first time as a helpless babe. He's coming the second time as a conquering king. He came the first time riding a donkey. He's going to become the second time riding a white horse. We know that he ascended in Acts 1.11 from the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah 14.4 says that he's going to return to the Mount of Olives in the second coming. We've got to open our understanding to the greatness of the event by getting our arms around how important this is in the scriptures. Um, it is said that future prophecies take up about one-fifth of the scripture. Of that one-fifth of future prophecies, one-third of them are referring to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some have calculated that there's 660 general prophecies. 333 are about Christ. 109 were fulfilled at his first coming, 224 are for the second coming. The Bible has a lot to say about the second coming of Jesus Christ. There are over 1,500 Old Testament passages that refer in some way to the second coming of Jesus. One out of every 25 New Testament verses refer to the second coming. For every time the Bible mentions the first coming of Christ, it mentions the second coming eight times. For every time the atonement is mentioned once, the second coming is mentioned twice. Jesus refers to his second coming himself 21 times, and over 50 times we're, we're told to be ready for his return. Are you getting the idea that this is a major theme of Scripture, the second coming of Jesus? And I only throw those numbers at you not so that you'll remember them, but you, so you'll get the feeling for the breadth of what the word has to say about the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible make it, makes it clear, Jesus will return. So I have some good news for you. Jesus is coming back. Can I get an amen? amen. Yep. I also have some disappointing news. I have no clue when or how. <laughs> in our passage today, Jesus tells us how to live in light of his impending return. But we don't know when, and this creates a little bit of a problem for us. Because in a few different places throughout the New Testament, there seems to be this idea that the end is coming soon. And I just got one example for you from 1 Peter 4, 7. It 
says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober minds so that you may pray. So, we, so as we dig in, before we get to our verse in Mark, as we dig into how we're supposed to live in the end times, I want to start out by pointing out this elephant in the room. Peter says that the end is near, but that was written about 2,000 years ago. So if the end of all things is near, wouldn't you agree that maybe he has a slightly different understanding of what the word near means than you and I do? We are on our second week of looking at this idea of the end times. If you missed two weeks ago, I highly encourage you to go online and listen to David's wonderful sermon on the first part of Mark chapter 13. It was mostly a good message. <laughs> you had to be there to get that one, I guess. Before we dig into the message today, we need to take a quick look about this idea of the second coming is going to occur, when it's going to occur. If you're a thinking person, you realize there's an elephant in the room, and that is, how in the world can the Bible, if it's the Word of God, make statements like, the end of all things is near, and then 2,000 years later, we're still waiting? So if you're new to the faith, you may be thinking, well, that's confusing. If you've been around a while, maybe you've already come to terms with this. And there's, and there's a whole other group of people who are saying, well, there wasn't an elephant in the room until you pointed it out, but now there is. But I think it's important that we understand how to interpret these things. For 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. And for 2,000 years, they've got it wrong. There's always something that precipitates this. Uh, there's predictions. Um, the, a very recent one, you probably remember, there's going to be a blood moon on Passover, and there's something significant about that. And that means Christ is coming back imminent, you know. Um, how many of you remember Y2K and all the little predictions? It's going to be the end of the world. Or the Mayan calendar running out. Or maybe, maybe if you go way back, the Halley's Comet when it was coming. People thought that was going to be the end of the world. Or but way back in 1948 when Israel was restored as a nation, and there was people that were... Um, thought that Christ would return before that current generation was alive, died. There are people that are certain about these things, and they pass, and we're still here, right? Uh, there's even a Wikipedia page for predictions and claims for the second coming of Christ. Take a look at this screenshot that I got. I know you can't read it, and there's several pages of this he's going to go through. Some of these names, if you could see them, we would clearly label them as heretics. We go, oh, those people are just wacky. But then there's other ones like, you know, John Wesley, who formed the Methodists, and people who just made claims. There's one uh, guy named Jerry Falwell who started Liberty University, where I have a master's degree from. He said that he, he said probably, so he's, I guess he's covered. He said Christ probably will return within 10 years of 1999. Well, it's been 20, so I guess he was wrong. <laughs> um, you can go back the last 2,000 years of history and you'll find multiple examples of people claiming they've cracked the code and they know when Jesus is coming back and they put a date on it and it even happened in the early church. Um, the first thing on the list was in the hundreds. Um, you can go back and there's all kinds of these examples. So here's a simple fact. Jesus came, he left, and he said he's coming back. John 14, 3 says, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, uh, that you also may be where I am. So he says he's coming back. So the passage we're going to look at in Mark today, I want you to see that with your own eyes. So if you can open whatever version of the Bible you have to Mark chapter 13, whether you actually brought a printed version, 
whether you're looking up your phone, a tablet, maybe you got a flat screen TV or you have a scroll or whatever you're using these days, open it up to Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 37. And we'll, of course, have the verses on the screen for you to follow along um, if you don't have any of those things. So, starting verse 32, Jesus is coming back, but this is what he has to say about how he's coming back and when he's going to come back. Uh, but about that day or hour, no one knows. So help me out here. Who knows? No one. No one. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son. Nor the Son. The Son. Who's that? Jesus. That's Jesus. But only the Father. Now, right, let's, we've got to stop for a second. Right there. You gotta, that, gotta, that has to give you pause when you have people speculating uh, about Christ's return, don't you think? I mean, wouldn't it be pretty arrogant for someone to write a book or to have a conference on prophecy or just to stand up and tell you, here's the timing, here's the date, this is when it's going to happen, right? That'd be arrogant when Jesus says that the angels and he himself don't even know. Or even just ordering the latest prophecy book from Amazon and saying, I'm going to sit down and figure this out. I don't think so. And then he goes on to say this, um, back to Mark 13. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned tasks, and tells one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So here's the interesting thing. If we get back to the elephant in the room that I started, that verse I started with, um, apparently, as part of the early church, um, the apostles at the time uh, when they wrote this, including Peter, who wrote that verse in Peter, thought that Jesus' return was imminent. That's the elephant in the room. So let me take a couple of moments to explain some things. So we believe wholeheartedly that this Bible is the Word of God. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, it comes from God. That's why we call this the Word of God. This is why I personally believe that it's without error. Now, that doesn't mean that every little phrase it uses has to stand on its own. For example, it uses colloquial phrases. It uses exaggeration. It uses metaphors just like we do in our common language. Like when I say, hey, bro, you really missed out. Everybody was there. Do I literally mean everybody was there? No. We all know what that means in common language. Um, some people take scriptures and they rigidly read everything into them, and you can get in trouble when you do that. Here's one we dealt with not too long ago in Mark chapter 9. Remember where it says, um, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off. If your eye causes you to stumble, then pluck it out. Remember that? That just might be hyperbole, right? I don't see too many of you with missing hands and eyes. Most Christians seem to think that's hyperbole. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful that you don't read the Bible, interpret the language of the Bible differently than you would regular language or regular terms. There are word pictures that are used for instance, sometimes language, especially ancient language, is painting a broad picture of what things are like, and it's not the precise mathematical thing that we would like it to be. And someday we're going to get to heaven, and all these things are going to become perfectly clear. But down here, with our corrupt minds and our limited ability to think, 
we just do the best with what we can. So there's many secondary things that we form opinions about, like when the rapture takes place, David. That's secondary. I'm not going to die over my opinion, and I'm not going to kill you over your opinion. Those are secondary things. Um, just like David said a couple weeks ago, at the end of the day, the Bible is the Word of God. And when it calls something a sin, it's a sin. And if it says there's something we should be doing, we should be doing it. We can get all hung up on the things that aren't clear, but for 95% of the Bible, there's no question. It's incredibly clear. Those are the primary things. The things like the virgin birth, the divinity of Christ, salvation by grace through faith, right? Those are the hills we die on. Those are the things that are well documented in Scripture. But there's also a few secondary things we're not real clear on. But if God wanted us to be super clear on those things, he would have given us more. If God wanted us to know precisely when Christ was going to return, he would have told us precisely when Christ was going to return. I don't think he wanted us to know. For example, you know, I'm a, uh, I'm a mid-tribulation rapture person. I think the tribulation is going to start, and about halfway through, in Revelations, when that last trumpet's blown before the bulls of wrath are out, I think that's when the rapture happens. Look at that guy. <laughs> Two weeks ago, Pastor Dave had some fun with me because he looks at the same verses and comes to a different conclusion about the tribulation. Now, here's the point. I may be wrong. Pastor David may be wrong. In the end, it doesn't matter. The rapture's going to happen, and if it's pre-tribulation rapture, I'm going to go, huh, it was pre-trib. Brett David was right, right? No big deal. I'm going to be up there. But guess what? If it's mid-trib and, and everyone's suffering in the tribulation, and Pastor David's going to be having a crisis of faith because he's going to be, what happened? <laughs> it's a non-salvific issue. It doesn't have to do with salvation, right? So, and, and these are the things that Christians debate no one else even asks these questions, right? So remember, in the Word of God, but the people who wrote it are just like you and me. So what they wrote is without error, but they weren't without error. Just look at the book of Acts, and the apostles did stupid things. In Galatians, Paul has to rebuke Peter. In the book of Acts, Paul plans this mission trip, um, and he prays, seeks God, and then he goes, and nothing's working out right because God didn't want him to go there. He missed God's will, just like you and me. So what they wrote with is without error, but they weren't without error. They're people just like you and me. So here's the distinction between what they wrote and who they were. Now, on top of that, you have the fact that just because they were writing the word of God doesn't mean they always understood the implications of everything they wrote. Sometimes God had them write things for other people. In fact, there's this great verse in 1 Peter talking about the Old Testament prophets, um, and it says they prophesied concerning the coming of the Messiah, and it says they searched intently and with great care as they sought to understand his sufferings and the glories to follow and the time frame for which it all worked out. That, so the Old Testament guys are trying to figure it all out. And it was told to them that these things are not for you. Right? So the Old Testament prophecies were spot on, but the Old Testament prophets didn't necessarily understand them. They weren't for them. So you could have a I can get three stools up here and I can put Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel back in the day and be all, these prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, uh, tell me what they mean. And they would be wrong because they didn't have the context. They had the truth, they wrote it down diligently, but they didn't have the context to understand it. 
Sometimes that's the case for us. The word of God's right. Sometimes the, the misunderstanding is in, in us in our context. Uh, and sometimes even the writers of scriptures didn't understand what they wrote. Their understanding was wrong. They couldn't grasp it. Okay. So when we look at the word of God, it's seen through our humanity. It's seen from our vantage point in time, from our culture, and that sometimes makes it hard to understand. So why has Jesus delayed his return? Why has it been 2,000 years? I think there's a great verse from 2 Peter 3, 8 through 10. This is the same guy who in the verse we looked at in the beginning said the end was near, by the way. Um, and if you remember way back at the beginning of the series, which is unlikely because it's been so long ago, um, you learn, we learned that the author of Mark is anonymous, but it's been traditionally held that it was a guy named John Mark, and that he was acting as the scribe for Peter. So the early church was kind of unanimous in their acceptance that John Mark was the writer, and then he was transcribing uh, the teachings of Peter, right? So looking at verses from Peter kind of makes sense. So here's what Peter had to say about the slowness of Christ's return um, in Second uh, Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's being patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. So what's that verse saying about why Jesus hasn't returned? Because every day he waits 